right, good morning. Great to see you all. Well, if you'd go ahead and open up your Bibles, begin making your way to 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. Um, I mentioned last week, as we were talking about Paul's prohibition against women teaching in the church, that this idea of teaching carried along with it a sense of leadership, of oversight, of discipleship. Um, and I also mentioned that this responsibility of leading the church, although designated for men, did not apply to all men, meaning not all men are called to be or authorized to be leaders in the church. And this morning, we are going to explore uh, the two biblical church roles that Paul instructs Timothy to fill here in 1 Timothy, along with the qualifications for those positions. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and read our text. If you would stand with me this morning as we rise in honor of God's word, we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1 and going down to verse 13. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you this morning as we have this freedom to gather, to gather together in this family, this body of believers in Iwakumi. God, we pray that you would bless this time this morning as we continue our worship through the study of your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to just be attentive to what you have to say. May you guide our thoughts as we look at your word this morning, and may you be honored and glorified as we take this time together to look at what you have to say to the church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, as we continue in the book of 1 Timothy this morning, Paul is going to instruct Timothy on the kind of people he wants to see be influential in the church. And we're going to dissect these requirements and these roles to be filled. But before we do that, I want to take just a little time to talk about church polity, which is just a, a fancy way of saying how churches are governed or led. This is important, for one, because we are all part of the church body and therefore have a vested interest in, in how it functions. But I also think this will help us to understand and to frame what Paul is writing about 
here in the text this morning and to help us see how we can apply it today. So there are three main or, or overarching models that we use today or we see today when it comes to church governance. The first is the episkopos model. It comes from the Greek word for bishop or overseer, but we'll get more into that later. And in this model, as the title suggests, the church is governed by a bishop or an overseer who's responsible for directing the church and making decisions that need to be made. And to put it into a more contemporary evangelical terminology, we would have a pastor or a senior pastor who is directing the church. Biblically speaking, this pastor would be doing so by the leading of the Holy Spirit and would be accountable to God for the decisions he makes. Um, but it's the pastor that's leading the church. The second model is the Presbyterius model. And this is from the Greek word for elder, Presbyteros. In this model, there is a group, group of elders called the Presbyteros that govern the church, providing direction and making decisions. These elders then are responsible for putting in place a pastor and ensuring that pastor is meeting the spiritual needs of the body. Thus, the pastor is responsible to the board of elders as well as to God for teaching and the instruction he provides. And then the third model is the congregational rule model in which the congregation of believers or the church votes on decisions and direction. In cases where there is a single pastor to conduct the teaching, the congregation would choose and vote on the pastor and could also choose to remove that pastor if they felt the need to. Now, the Bible itself does not specifically mandate how the church is to be governed. Um, and all three of these come from church history throughout the years, uh, and there are a lot of different variations and distinctions among them, so those are kind of just general. Um, but both the Episcopos and the Presbyterius model find their basis in specifically the pastoral epistles that we've been studying. Uh, but we aren't given enough practical detail to necessarily say one is right over the other. And that being said, we don't see any examples of the congregational model in the Bible. And based on everything we're going to get into this morning, um, I'm comfortable saying that this is probably not a biblically supported way of doing it. Um, Calvary Chapel is more of an Episcopos form of government. So Pastor Chuck Smith, uh, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, believed that the pastor, called and ruled over by the Lord and recognized by the congregation as God's instrument to lead the church, the pastor had the responsibility and the accountability to lead the church. But Pastor Chuck also referred to the example of Moses. Now, if you'll recall, Moses, when he was overwhelmed with the demands placed on him by the, the people of Israel, he took the wise advice of his father-in-law and he appointed other men to help lead the people in smaller matters. And then if a matter arose that they couldn't deal with, then they would bring that to Moses. So Moses also had Aaron and the Levites that assisted the, the nation of Israel by teaching them how to worship the Lord. So with this in mind, Calvary chapels are typically led and guided by a senior pastor who has a board of elders to assist him in leading the people, making decisions, and often assistant pastors and ministry leaders to help minister to the spiritual needs of the church on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's why our church looks like it does. Now, as I was studying this week, I came across an article written on the topic of church governance, uh, and the author of that article wrote in the introduction to his article that he was examining different models of church government, not for their biblical foundation, but for how well they cope under pressure. Uh, and specifically, he was trying to answer the question of what happens in each form of government when a leader is forced to move on. 
And this jumped out at me because I think a lot of the time when we ask questions or have questions about our church government, we're often asking, where is the accountability? Where are the guards against corruption or backsliding or against the abuse of power? And this makes sense as a line of questioning for us, especially for those of us who come from America, because our government was built on the idea that we should limit the power or authority in the hands of any one person or group so that power does not get abused. One of the things the founders believed about the American government is expressed um, by this quote from John Adams, our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now, I am in no way trying to or want to equate the church to the American system of government. Uh, I merely want to illustrate the point that even with checks and balances in place, the founders recognized that there was potential for abuse in the government. And in the same way that the writer of that article I mentioned insinuated in his introduction that there is potential for abuse in the church government as well, regardless of what form that church government takes. And that's because people are people and bring into whatever position the problems they have as people. And that is where our text this morning comes in. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, is going to detail the kind of people that Timothy should entrust with leadership in the church. And what he requires is not a gifting or abilities, a skill set of a great leader or of a great communicator. Rather, he's going to emphasize the importance of godly character. The people entrusted with leadership of the church should be men of character. So with that, let's get into verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, I mentioned earlier that we were going to come back to the Greek words. Uh, the word here for overseer is episkopoi. Your Bible might have it translated as bishop. Um, and this, that's where this word bishop comes from, is this passage. Now, why do I point this out? Let's turn for just a moment, a couple pages ahead, to the book of Titus. Uh, just a couple pages ahead in your Bible. Paul's letter to Titus, also one of the pastoral epistles. In Titus 1, chapter 5, Paul wrote to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, sounds familiar, right? Very similar to what we just read in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy accepts in Titus, the word translated elder in verse 5 is the Greek word presbyteros, not episkopoi. So we have the same description, the same qualifications, but a different title. And I point this out because, biblically speaking, the title bishop, elder, overseer, pastor, and shepherd are all used interchangeably. They all refer to the same position as leaders of the church. The separation of bishops and elders as two distinct roles in the church didn't come about until sometime in the second century, and it's the first time we have any evidence of it. And they're never treated as different roles in the Bible 
or in any other writings we have from the early church in the first century. What we do see, however, is a difference in audiences. So presbyteros, or elder, the word used in Titus, was a word already familiar to the Jewish audience because that would have been the Greek word for the Jewish elders or the Jewish religious leaders, presbyteros. So in Titus, written to Titus on the island of Crete, which had a large Jewish population in their church, Paul uses the word presbyteros for elder along with the word episkopoi for overseer or bishop to provide something that the Jews would be familiar with. However, in 1 Timothy, which was written to the church in Ephesus, a primarily non-Jewish congregation, Paul just used the word episkopoi. So this could be as simple as recognizing that Paul was addressing these different letters to different audiences and therefore used words that those audiences would be familiar with. At the end of the, at the, end of the day, the idea is that there was a leadership role in the church, and whether you refer to it as bishop or elder or pastor or shepherd or overseer, there is a position of leadership, and Paul is urging Timothy to find the right men to fill this role. So, back to verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So the first thing we notice is that it's not wrong to want to be a pastor or a leader in the church. Paul calls it a noble task, a good work, a fine thing to do. However, there are qualifications for it. And Paul is going to list 15 different requirements for those who aspire to lead the church. And we're going to go through those as quickly as we can right now. So number one, a leader must be above reproach. Not perfect, but also not someone who's easily attacked or disparaged because of his moral failings. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The idea is they can say bad things, but it's not going to stick because you're obviously not living like that, above reproach. Number two, a leader must be the husband of one wife. Now, this one has caused a lot of debate. There are some who say this means a pastor must be married, similar to the Jewish requirement for members of the Sanhedrin to be married. But this seems unlikely. As Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. It is hard to conceive of Paul disqualifying himself from leading the church. So that seems to not be the likely case. Another option is that this means if a pastor is married, he is prohibited from ever marrying again. So if he was a widower or if he was divorced, there would not be an option for a second marriage. Now, this is a possible meaning, and there are a large group of people that come to this consensus, but it does seem unlikely as well. Uh, in Romans 7.2 and in 1 Corinthians 7.29, Paul clearly lays out that marriage is generally permissible after the death of a spouse. Um, and we also do have biblical grounds for divorce, the grounds of sexual immorality of a spouse in Matthew 5. We can also make a case for divorce and the abandonment of a spouse from 1 Corinthians 7. So even though we know God hates divorce, it would seem strange to see this as the one thing, the one sin in a man's path that disqualifies him from ministry. But there is a third possible interpretation, and that is a prohibition for more than one wife at a time. So polygamy definitely off the table, but I think it goes deeper than that. This phrase, this translated uh, 
the husband of one wife would be more literally translated as a one woman man or a man of one woman. And the idea is that there would be no hint of unfaithfulness, no marital impurity, that the man's love, care, and devotion belong to one woman alone, to his wife. And I do think this seems to be the best interpretation, best lines up with the totality of Scripture. But those are the options. Number three, a leader must be sober-minded. Your Bible might read temperate, the idea of recognizing the things that truly matter in life. Uh, take a look at Luke 21, 34. It says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So this is the opposite of sober-minded. Somebody who's concerned with the cares of the world or with drunkenness or with entertainment and not aware of the time, aware of the hour, and not aware that Jesus is coming back. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Number four, leader must be self-controlled. A leader must be the master of his emotions and not the other way around. He must be disciplined. Not only is this conducive to ministering to others, but this is also evidence of the Spirit's work in someone's life. Galatians 5, 22 through 24, a familiar passage, says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So a leader in the church must be in control of himself, in control of his passions and desires, submitting them to Jesus. Number five, a leader must be respectable or of good behavior. He must act in a manner appropriate for a leader of the church and a teacher of the gospel and the word of God. We might say his life should line up with what he says. Number six, a leader must be hospitable. And I like this one because this isn't just for leaders or pastors. Did you know that we as Christians are supposed to be known for our hospitality? Romans 12, 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I think there are two reasons for this. The first we find in John 13, 35. And Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our caring for each other, our hospitality towards one another, shows that we belong to Christ. But the other reason comes from Hebrews 13, 2, where the author of Hebrews wrote, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember the account of, of Abraham uh, when God came down to judge Sodom. Abraham welcomed the Lord and his angels, and he served them without knowing who they were. But this goes even further than that. In Matthew 25, 40 Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says, The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The way we treat people is a reflection of the way we treat Christ. As Christians, we are to be hospitable, both to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to strangers. And although this may seem like something we can get away with not doing and no one would notice, 
let us be reminded that God sees everything. God notices our heart towards others. And the leader in the church is to set the example and be known for his hospitality. Number seven, leader must be able to teach. And this is interesting. If you look at this list, this is the only skill, the only thing we might consider a gifting or an ability. This is it. Everything else has to do with the leader's character. This is the one skill. And it goes back to what we talked about last week. The idea of the teacher in the church as one who oversees and disciples those in the church. A leader in the church needs to be able to do that. In his letter to Titus, Paul puts it this way. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. As leaders in the church, the men raised up to be elders or pastors need to be able to explain the truth properly and to confront falsehood when it tries to come into the church. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. The leaders of the church are to teach the truth, to reject false teaching, to train the church to recognize the false teaching and hold fast to what is good. Therefore, they must be able to teach. Number eight. Leader must not be a drunkard. Your version might say not given to wine or not addicted to wine. The leader is not to be addicted to alcohol or, for that matter, any other substance. Now, this is not a prohibition against alcohol in and of itself. Paul will encourage Timothy later in this letter to drink a little wine for medicinal purposes. That's in 1 Timothy 5.23. But Paul prohibits being addicted to wine. I find it helpful to remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.12. That all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. He also wrote in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And he contrasts getting drunk with wine and getting filled with the Spirit. We as Christians especially those in leadership, need to be aware of what we are allowing to influence us. And I know alcohol is very much a part of military culture, but it is a drug. It has an impact on your mind. It affects your judgment and your inhibitions. And I would rather, as Paul encourages, allow the spirit to be affecting my judgment than a drug. It just seems better to me. Number nine. A leader must not be violent, not easily offended, not going around looking for a fight, because there will be opportunity for those if that's the attitude you have. People like to ridicule Christianity, and if they can't bring anything against Christianity itself, then they will go after the person sharing. First uh, Peter 3.15 says, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We aren't to go to war whenever anybody slights us. We aren't to attack back. Rather, number 10, a leader must be gentle. 
And this is another one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Another evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, our gentleness. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When ministering to people, we don't need to be proving ourselves right. We don't need to be defending ourselves. We don't need to be justifying ourselves. We need them to see Jesus. That's what they need. And often that means overlooking those personal slights or personal insults so that we can direct the conversation and the attention back to him. This gentleness takes the attention off of ourselves and off of any disagreements and puts it back on Jesus Christ where it needs to be. Number 11, a leader must not be quarrelsome. You might be noticing there's a theme here. Rather, he should be peaceable. And look, there are a lot of doctrines we can disagree about in the Bible. Our aim is to get to people to see Jesus, not to make sure they agree with every view we have on every doctrine. And don't get me wrong, there are important, there are crucial doctrines that we need to understand rightly, we need to proclaim rightly, we need to hold to. But there are a lot of other issues that we need to learn how to disagree agreeably over. Because, again, the testimony of the church to the world isn't how strongly we hold to our positions, but the love we have for one another. If we want to pick a fight about every issue, we can certainly do so, and we will very easily find people to fight with us over everything. But that's not what the church is about. That's not evidence of Jesus Christ in us. Back to 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And the mark of the Christian church is that we can believe different things, we can hold different views on things, and yet still walk together in love and in unity, recognizing that Jesus is so much bigger than our understanding of one of these texts or one of these root words that boils over to other things. And again, there are some things that we do hold and we don't compromise on and we don't give up. But a lot of these things that we think we need to not compromise on, we probably hold on to a little too tightly. And I just want us to think about what impact does that do to the testimony of our church when we're more concerned about having that right approach or what we believe is the right approach than we are about having unity. And Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 is that his church would be one as he and the Father are one. And by that, the world would know him. So we don't want to be quarrelsome, rather be peaceable, look to agree, look to disagree agreeably when we don't agree, and strive for unity in the church. Number 12, a leader must not be a lover of money. Not covetous, not greedy. Paul attaches a warning to this later on in this book in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The sad reality is that there are people who claim to be pastors who love money, who abuse their position to make themselves wealthy at the expense of the people they are supposed to shepherd and lead. And unfortunately, we have a very ready comparison for those who act that way given to us in the Gospel of Luke. After Jesus gave the parable of the dishonest manager, 
He says you can't serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other. Or you'll, you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. After that, we read in Luke chapter 16, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It is wrong for a leader in the church to be covetous, to be greedy, because this leads to an elevation of self, wandering from the faith, and temptation towards all kinds of evils. Rather, we need to take the attitude found in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is able to, to supply all that we need and he will give us what we need to do whatever it is that he's called us to do. We don't need to be striving after it. Number 13, and this is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The testing ground, the proving ground for ministry, is the home. If a man is unable to lead his family, to train his family to follow Jesus, then what expectation is there that he can lead or train the church? We can often have the idea that putting the church first is a way of putting God first, that when we prioritize the church and church activities over family activities, that we are prioritizing God. But that's not the case. Our first ministry, then, is our family. We are to cultivate our own relationship with God, and then our priority is leading our family spiritually in their relationship with God. Ministry comes from what's left after that. And it's sad, but we seem to get that backwards a lot as a church today. There, there's a reputation, a stigma attached to being a pastor's kid, a PK. And often, it's not a good one, right? Often is associated with rebellion, with lack of discipline, or, or something else along those lines. Now, this isn't to say that a pastor's kid need to be perfect, or that they must never walk away or leave the church. There comes a point in every person's life, and they have to decide for themselves the type of relationship they will have with God. And the best parent in the world cannot make somebody a follower of Christ. So this isn't saying that. What this is saying is, look, observe, watch how the man leads his family, because that is an indication of how well he will lead in the church. Which brings us to number 14 in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, this word for recent convert is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament to describe a newly planted tree or a sapling. The idea is there needs to be growth. There needs to be roots developed. There needs to be a maturity, an experience before one becomes a leader in the church. Or else there is that much more room for pride, for him to think, I'm here because I'm qualified to lead, or I'm here because I'm good at this and not the attitude of, I'm serving because this is what God has called me to do, and it's only by his grace that I can do it. We talked about this at the beginning of 1 Timothy, when Pastor Glenn was going through Paul's description of himself. And you think, early on in his writings, Paul writes of himself that he is the least of the apostles. 
And a little later in his ministry, he calls himself the least of the saints. And then we get here to 1 Timothy towards the end of his ministry, and he calls himself the chief of sinners. And this progression comes as a byproduct of his drawing closer to God, of knowing him more, of him maturing in Christ. And the same is true of us. The more we walk with Christ, the more we spend time with him, the more we allow him to work in our hearts and lives, the more we will realize how lost we are and how needful of him we are. The more we will realize how unworthy we are to even be called his followers. And that's when he can use us. When we finally realize that we don't have anything to offer him, that is when we are the most useful because we are no longer relying on what we bring, but instead on what he has and what he provides for us. And that brings us to the 15th and the final qualification in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. And this term outsiders refers to people outside the church. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And this is similar to what Peter wrote, which we already read in 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Look, there will be people who don't like us, who despise us, who hate us because of what we believe, but let us not give them ammunition to use, especially not as leaders. May they not use our laziness, our dishonesty, our hypocrisy, our undependability as further ammunition against Jesus Christ. We have no excuse for this. We are supposed to be model citizens, model employees, model neighbors as Christians. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. If that is the attitude we're carrying, then we should never have a complaint against us for our work ethic or our attitude. If I am persecuted for following Christ, then so be it. But may I never, through my actions, give anyone a reason to think less of my Lord. Now, before we continue, as we wrap up the qualifications for the leaders or the pastors in the church, I just want to quickly point out two things. First of all, as we have mentioned, 14 of these 15 qualifications have to do with the man's character. Character is infinitely more important in leadership than skill or ability, especially when it comes to leadership in the body of Christ. Because character is what helps us to stand. Look at the warnings again in verse 7, so that he might not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. In verse 6, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And again, that verse we referenced in chapter 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There are temptations, there are opportunities to fall, especially in ministry. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. All these character attributes are requirements here, not because they in themselves keep someone from falling, but rather because they are evidence of a life being lived in the power of the Spirit. Paul wrote to the Galatian church in Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
The men chosen to be leaders of the church are to be men filled with the Spirit so that they may lead by following his leading. But the second thing I want to point out is this. We see all these things, all these requirements that are for leaders of the church. But look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The men with these qualifications are being chosen because they are to be the examples to everyone else in the church. Examples of how one ought to live as a follower of Christ. This godly character, this doesn't just apply to pastors, to leaders. It's a requirement for that position, but it is something all followers of Christ should emulate more and more as we follow the Spirit and as we allow Him to do His work in our hearts and lives. So let us not just dismiss this and say, well, this, this is for pastors. I don't need to worry about it. This is for all of us. So before we move on to the next question or the next section in 1 Timothy, we're going to take a short interlude uh, and head instead to the book of Acts chapter 6. You can turn there if you'd like. It'll also be up on the screen. Acts 6, starting in verse 1. During this time, as the disciples were increasing in numbers, uh, increasing in number, a comp complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full numbers of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now what we have here, most scholars believe to be the origin of the position of deacon. The apostles, as the leaders of the church, were attempting to minister to the spiritual and physical needs of the early church, but as they attempted to do so, they became aware of the effect this was having on their ability to study and teach God's word and to pray. There was unbalance. They realized they were called to teach and they couldn't give up that responsibility in order to meet all the physical needs of the people. So, Following the wisdom of God, they appointed men to oversee the physical ministry of the church so they could devote themselves to the spiritual ministry. And this need continues today. There are many physical needs that we have here in this church that we need to meet as we gather together. There's a need to welcome people, to guide them to the right place if they are new, to provide coffee and other stimulants to wakefulness so we survive the service to ensure the lights work, the sound work, the TV and computers are displaying properly, to make sure the bathrooms are clean and stocked. And we add to that all the things that happen throughout the week, there are announcements, communications being sent out, scheduling of events, rearranging chairs and rooms for events, cleaning, stocking classrooms, preparing lessons and snacks. Just imagine for a minute if Pastor Glenn was trying to make sure all of that was happening every week, checking and supervising everything, what impact would that have on his ability to effectively prepare and teach God's word to us? How much time praying and studying would he have to give up to make sure all the practical things get done every week? And hopefully you see where this is going. It wouldn't work. 
It would distract from the work, the priority that God has given to him of spiritually overseeing the flock here at Calvary Iwakuni. So that's what this next section of our text in 1 Timothy is about. This is the second role that the church in Timothy is called to appoint people to, the role of deacon. Now our word deacon comes from the Greek word here in the text, diakonos. It's also translated as servant or minister. So back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongues, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now we see here many of the same requirements as we did for overseers. Here again, character is important. These are people who are going to be responsible for ministering to the needs of the church and need to be people who will do so in a way that is spirit-led without the need for a pastor to be supervising them. And there are some differences. You see that idea of, or the word double-tongued. It could mean hypocritical, someone who says one thing to one person and something else to another person. Uh, it could also carry the idea of one who thinks one thing and says another. Uh, those who serve should be people of sincerity, people of honesty. Like the overseer, they must not be addicted to wine or greedy for money. Um, and there's that phrase about the mystery of faith. We'll talk more about that next week, so stay tuned. But the idea of holding the faith with a clear conscience speaks of accepting and believing the truth, holding to the truth. This is contrasted to the behavior of those Paul writes about in Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And this is the opposite of holding to the truth with a clear conscience. Verse 10 says these people are to be tested first. And this is the same idea we get from the prohibition against pastors being recent converts. There needs to be a, a season of observation to ensure that the character is consistent with what is required of a servant. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And this is an, an appropriate model for the church. When Jesus told the parable of the talents, the response of the master to the servants who managed responsibly in Matthew 25, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In the same way in the church, we often start in areas of little responsibility. And as we prove faithful in those areas, we are given more responsibility and more opportunities to serve. And it is from those who have done this, who have served, been proven faithful, that the church is to employ, appoint its servants or its deacons. Uh, and on that note, this is the idea behind ministry applications. It's one of the things we do here at Calvary Ukuni is ministry applications. And part of the reason for that is that gives us a chance to see what you've done in the past, what ministries you've served in, to see that you've been faithful as you get put into a position here. This brings us to verse 11, 1 Timothy 3, 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, this is an interesting verse. Your Bible might say women, likewise, rather than wives. And that is because the Greek word here can be used and is used for both women or wives. And there are a couple of reasons to believe that women is probably the better translation of this verse. First of all, if it 
is supposed to be translated wives, then we have to ask ourselves why the deacons, the servants in the church, have a requirement placed on their wives that pastors and overseers do not. Secondly, the word likewise before wives here in verse 11 is the same word used in verse 8 after deacons. It says deacons likewise. And this word is a word that's used in Greek to introduce a new list, which would make an argument that this is speaking to a new group of people, women as deacons and not a continuation of the previous list. And finally, we know that there were deaconesses or women deacons in the early church. Paul writes in Romans 16, 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. The word there, servant, that is the word diakonos, the same Greek word that we have here in 1 Timothy. Phoebe seems to have been a deaconess in the church. Now remember, the prohibition Paul gave last chapter was for the role of teaching in the church. The deacons are not the teachers. You'll see that missing from this list of qualifications. The, the requirement of being able to teach, it's a, a requirement for an overseer or leader, but it's not required for the deacon. It's not the rule. So this seems to be a role for men and women serving in the church. So Paul continues, verse 11, with the requirements for the deaconesses or the women deacons. They must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And this dignified is the same thing we saw in the requirements for deacons, the same idea carried in the requirement for the pastor in the phrase above reproach. They are also not to be slanderers or not gossips, being wise in the way they speak. Sober-minded again, same idea, and faithful. So having placed that interlude there specifically for the women serving, Paul then completes the list for deacons in verse 12. 1 Timothy 3.12, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And here again, we have the same requirements on the family life as we saw for the pastors or leaders, stressing the idea the importance of balance in ministry and the idea that leading in the church comes in priority after leading in the home. Let's wrap up with verse 13. 1 Timothy 3.13 For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here Paul gives two benefits for those serving in the church. The first is outward. They gain good standing for themselves. Just like the pastor, it is a noble thing. It's a good thing to serve in the church. Those that serve do a good thing and gain good standing. And the idea is, taking the principle again from Matthew 25, 21, that those who are proven faithful with what they are given may then be asked to serve in larger roles. And for Timothy, who is looking for pastors, looking for leaders to raise up in the church, what better place to look than those who are already serving faithfully. But the second benefit we see here in this verse is internal, and that is the great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Those who serve faithfully gain a confidence, a boldness in their faith. And this is fascinating. Remember Stephen? Stephen was the first martyr in the church. Stephen, we read his name already, he was one of the first seven chosen in that model, that precursor for deacon. He was chosen to serve tables, to oversee the distribution of food. And yet, 
he gives one of the longest sermons that we have recorded in the Bible, right before being martyred for his faith. Philip, another one in that list, another one of the seven, Philip is known not as Philip the server, but as Philip the evangelist. These men who were raised up as servants in the church became known as bold proclaimers of their faith. When we step out, when we serve God faithfully, even if it's a, some, something as simple as saying hi to people at the door or as sweeping the floors, when we're in service of God, God uses that to grow our boldness, grow our faith. And you'll also find that even if you are serving in one of those roles, that people will often look to you to answer questions about other things. What does the church teach about this? What does the Bible say about this? Serving faithfully in ministry gives us that boldness and that confidence in Jesus Christ to be able to share with others. Now, as we wrap up this look at roles in the church, I just want to make three quick applications, and then we're done. The first is something we've already touched on a couple of times. But the emphasis of the text this morning that when it comes to serving in the church, your character is of so much more importance than your skill or abilities. You may think you have a lot to offer, but if you're lacking in your character and your walk with God, you're missing the most important thing. Conversely, you may think you don't have much to offer, but if you are faithfully walking with God, he is going to use that. Secondly, Paul is writing this to Timothy instructing him to lead the church by building up the people around him. He wasn't giving Timothy a, a list of instructions. Here's what you do when this happens. Here's what you do when this happens. Here's how you do this. He was telling Timothy that the way to lead the church, the way to ensure it functions properly, is to invest in the people in the church, to raise up the right people to serve, to lead, to be examples. And finally, and we'll wrap up here, this discussion, these lists, have been about character qualifications, but like I mentioned before, those character traits are just evidence of the Spirit working in our lives. And the thing we need to make sure we understand is that Jesus is the head of the church, not any man, whether we call him a bishop, an elder, an overseer, a pastor, shepherd. 1 Peter 2.25 calls Jesus the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Colossians 1 tells us Jesus is the head of the church. And I want to read this passage from 1 Peter again, but this time we'll add one more verse. 1 Peter 5, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Whatever our church body might look like, however it is governed, Jesus is the shepherd and the overseer. We serve him as leaders by following his example and leading. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. God, as we look at this list of qualifications, this list of requirements, and we think there's no way anybody can meet that, God, we know it's only by you. That it's your spirit working in us that helps us to live as you've called us to live. God, I pray that you would continue that work that you've begun in each and every one of us. You continue to work in our hearts and lives, continue to make us look more and more like you. 
as we fill the calling that you've called us to, God. May we grow in our trust and our faith in you. May we grow in our sensing of your leading and guidance. May we grow in our confidence and our boldness to proclaim you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.